Good morning, church. It's good to be here today. So this has been a bit of a crazy morning. You ever had those days when it just feels like things don't seem to go right and not seem to go right? It seems like everything seems to be going just the other way, going wrong. It's been one of those mornings for me. I woke up this morning to the phone ringing. Actually, I didn't wake up, but it was just getting rolling, heard the phone ringing and, uh, and missed it. And then Jacob sent me a text this morning and said, hey, you, you're teaching, right? You never sent your PowerPoint. And I'm like, don't. So I had to tackle that this morning. I'm, I'm running behind already and just feeling like, all right, God, that's crazy. I can't believe it. it's never happened. Like literally, I've never forgotten. And then running out and, and, uh, and my wife's like, hey, you need energy? I'm like, I'm exhausted. I don't know what's going on. I'm just basically like zip fizz. I'm chugging zip fizz in the morning. I get into the car because I'm already running late. I know I have to be at church at 1010. And, and, uh, and then halfway here, I realize I forgot something. But praise the Lord, my wife is at home and she can pick it up for me. So I give my wife a call, nothing. I'm like thinking, maybe she just, maybe she's running to the phone. I'll call again, nothing. I'm like, you know, maybe she's in the bathroom. I don't know. She could be doing something, wandering around, or maybe it's on mute. So I'll just give her a minute or two. And so I put the phone down, and I drop it in that slot, you know, between the seat and the thing. And so I'm reaching down, and my, and my wrist gets caught. And I'm like, oh. And Danielle, I'm like, Danielle's in the back seat. Praise the Lord. Danielle, can you get down there and get a light and, and find my phone? Because I need to get mom a call before she actually leaves the house. And she's like, okay. And she's down there. I don't see it, Dad. I'm like, how can you not see it? I just dropped it. I know it's there. Look in the crack. That's got to be where it is. It's in the crack. She's down there. She's like, I can't. I'm like, get on the floor. Come on. You can do this. And in my head, I'm screaming. And, and, but in my voice, I'm using my calm voice. You know, sweetheart, it's, you, just, you can do it, babe. I know you can. She's like, Dad, I don't see it at all. It's not down here. I'm like, how can it not be down here? It's like, all right, all right, don't worry. I need to get to church safely. I have a kid and I have a minor in the car, so just drive, right? So I finally get to church, and, and it turns out my wife is already gone. I'm like, babe, I totally forgot a speaker I need for a leadership gathering, and can you, can, where are you? And she's like, I'm here. I can go home and pick it up. I'm like, no, don't go home and pick it up. Are you close to Walmart? And she's like, I'm close to Walmart. I can just buy one. I'm like, awesome. Wait, no, I don't want to spend money to buy a speaker just for today. She's like, it's fine. We can return it afterwards. I'm like, yes. <laughs> then after I hang up, I'm thinking, that's probably unethical, right? That's not something a pastor's supposed to do. So you can't go and buy a speaker. And I told her, too, I'm like, get the most expensive one. If we're returning it, you might as well get a good one. So. I'm telling her this, and I realize that's not, that's not a very cool thing to do, and I'm like, you know what? Maybe it's okay. God understands. Well, let me check with someone, and I am not identify who it is, but I talked to someone in the church. They're like, no, no, you can't do that. That's not right. I'm like, ah, okay, fine. So this has been my morning, and then, and then realize I just come in here. I'm like, all right, Lord, I just need a moment to pray. What are we teaching on again? Oh, we're teaching on divorce. Who are the idiots that come up with these topics, you know, and just kind of like, no. So anyway... Yeah, so let's just choose one of the most controversial, craziest things that we could teach on, and that's what we're going to go through this morning. So that has been my time today. So let's, deep breath, we'll start over. Good morning, welcome to Awaken, uh, let's start over again. Good morning, welcome to Awaken Church. My name is Richard Dubay, and I'm one of the pastors here in this church, and this week we're launching a new series that we've entitled Seeing 4D. And it's a bit of a mess. It's a messy topic, as I just shared a moment ago. And the reason, well, I'm even going to start off by just saying, guys, 
is as we go through this series, I want to ask up front for your grace and your forgiveness. If there's anything we say that's stupid, that sounds unfair, that's insensitive, or maybe even insulting, I just want to know it is completely unintended. We are not going out of our way, despite what it looks like, to do anything like that at all. Instead, the challenge and the reason for this series is we want to take a look and say, man, it is important for us as a church that's in the world but not of the world to be able to understand how to tackle challenging issues and difficult topics as a church together. And that's kind of the point of what we're going to be covering. So we're tackling difficult topics, divorce, uh, doubt, depression, and death. That's the 4D. And, and the reason why these topics are always so challenging for us to confront, not only as a church but as a society, is because they're all personal it's one thing to talk about like divorce, for example, in theory, but it's another thing entirely when we have been or someone we love has actually been through divorce or we've experienced divorce, our parents have been or in some way, it just turns it into a completely different thing. It's one thing to talk about depression or doubt or death in theory, but when we're in the middle of it, what we find is I don't want to talk about things in theory. When you talk about it, I don't necessarily want to hear what you think the best answer should be. Does that make sense? When we're in the middle of it, we're kind of saying, God, I, I just, I need someone to know that, I need to know that I'm loved in the midst of this. And that's the tension that we're going to be walking through, the tightrope that this series is designed to walk over the course of the next Four weeks, that tension of understanding that there is a place for truth at the same time as the church, our responsibility is not simply to proclaim God's truth, but it's also to minister in the midst of it. And how do we do that with messy issues and messy topics like the one we're covering this morning? So with that said, we're going to dive in to the issue that we're going to talk about today, and that's the topic of divorce. And I want to start by saying whatever anyone in here might think about the topic of divorce, there's no denying that it is one of the most difficult and traumatizing events that can happen in a person's life. Whether you're in the midst of it or you're just caught up in the wake of it in some way, shape, or form. And so because of that, as I shared a moment ago, we're not going to talk about divorce in theory this morning. Instead, what we're going to do is break down this sermon into two parts. The first part is going to be, what does God say about this issue? And that's a very important place for us to start, because all of our ideas of good and evil, right and wrong, needs to come from a place that's stable and immovable. And as Christians, that begins with the Bible. That begins with the scriptures. That begins with what God says. And we have to begin there. But secondly, the second part of what we're going to go through this morning is to discuss how the church should be caring for people who are wrestling with the damage that divorce creates, right? So the aspect of truth and then the aspect of care and how those two come together. So what does God say about divorce? If we're looking honestly at the scriptures, for anyone who reads the scriptures honestly, you're going to find that what God says revolves around two key ideas. And the two key ideas are, number one, marriage is sacred, and number two, God hates divorce. Those are two truths that you can't get around if you're going to read the Bible honesty, honestly. So let's start with the idea of marriage is sacred. So uh, obviously, we're not going to be able to talk about divorce unless we understand marriage, because marriage, from God's perspective, 
You understand, God sees marriage not as a set of promises made in a church on a day of the year, right? And God doesn't see marriage as some legal contract drawn up in some judge's office. God views marriage as a covenant. And what covenants are is covenants are binding contracts between two parties where God is called in to bear witness. That's what differentiates a covenant from a contract, a promise made, whatever the case may be. It is that we are two parties coming together, making an ironclad agreement, and we're calling God in as a witness to basically affirm and make sure that that covenant is kept. In other words, God is coming in as a signee to this contract that we're making to one another, and God promises in doing so that he will do his part to make sure that we uphold the terms of the agreement, the terms of the covenant. So maybe another way of understanding this, it's a poor analogy, but it might help, is to imagine we're taking a student loan. Now, what is a student loan? A student loan is a contract between two parties, right? One person basically says, I will loan you a certain amount of money that you can use for school. The other party says, yes, I will pay that full amount back in installments with interest. That's what that student loan contract involves, right? And if we either side fails, there's consequences. Well, what the difference between that and a covenant is a covenant is kind of like you have a cosigner, on that loan that basically says, I will vouch for this person that they're going to do their part and pay off the loans, and I'm also going to take some responsibility in making sure that that happens. That's what a covenant looks like. And so when God affirms the covenant of marriage, it's not just a husband and wife coming together to make a promise to one another, to love one another, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in death. Um, It is God coming on and saying, yes. I approve. And this is a way that God, and I will help you fulfill these promises. This is the way uh, God shares it in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they're no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. This is how God defines marriage. A man leaving his father and mother to be joined to his wife and somehow, mysteriously, not just physically, emotionally, and spiritually, God is binding two unique, different, distinct people and making them one. And that is God joining together. And so what God says is if I am signing on and I am joining them together, no one else has the right to tear apart this contract. This is the reason why marriage is starting to be a marriage is sacred. The definition of sacred is when something is made holy to God. When God looks at marriage and he says, if you invite me in, and we can probably argue about whether or not every marriage invites God in, but if you invite God into this ceremony and we make this covenant before God, in the eyes of God, what we're doing is saying, Lord, we're asking you to also witness the commitments made and that you sign on to help us maintain the covenants we have. And God says, if I do so, you understand my signature makes this ironclad and set apart from me. The biblical word for that is holy, right? This is now a sacred covenant. So that's the first idea. Marriage is sacred. And we've got to understand that to understand why divorce is such a challenging 
issue. So the second part comes a bit more naturally now. God hates divorce. If marriage, and again, we can start, if marriage is God's idea from the beginning, God is the one who imagined this idea of two becoming one, then when God signs on, the expectation is that all the parties do their part. The husband will love his wife, the wife will love and honor her husband, and God will be there to make sure that they keep the commitments that they have made. They fulfill the promises made. And so what divorce does is it comes in and says, we're going to tear apart this contract, this covenant that God was a part of creating. And God considers this to be a cruel act of unfaithfulness, and this is how he shares it in the book of Malachi chapter 2. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord has witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you've been unfaithful to her. Though she remains your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. God hates divorce. That's not my words. That is God saying it. We're just echoing what God says. That being said, now we understand, right, that marriage is sacred And God hates divorce, and the reason why God hates divorce is he is a part of establishing it. So when that covenant is broken, God's signature on the line is also, in a sense, what is being broken. God says, that is not the way I designed this to be. That being said, divorce still happens. And that is not simply true today, but it was true even in the days of Jesus. And so we're going to walk through a passage to better flesh this idea out found in the book of Matthew where Jesus is confronted with this issue, with this question of divorce, and we're going to see how he responds to it. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowds followed him there, and he healed their sick. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? It's an interesting passage. It actually says these Pharisees, these religious wise men, these religious leaders came to trap Jesus. So what was the trap? I mean, what is the trap that is being set up by this question for Christ. And so one of the interesting things about this, this question is it's being asked when Jesus, it says here, is on the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. It's in a place called Perea. And Perea at this time is being ruled over by a man named Herod Antipas. If you have read the scriptures, you kind of have this idea. It's like, oh, that name sounds a bit familiar. I'll remind you who he is. Herod Antipas was a man who was married but coveted his brother's wife. In other words, he wanted to be with his brother's wife instead. So he finagled it, figured out a way to divorce his wife, and uh, divorce his wife Phaisalius, that's a crazy name, but he took Herodias, his brother's wife, to be his wife instead, formerly married to his half-brother. Well, that wasn't a very cool thing to happen. It was unrighteous, and he was confronted on it by John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist confronted him, and Herod and Herodias were so offended by the things that he said that basically this is wrong, you should not have done this, that they imprison him and later kill him and cut his head off. So that's how strongly they feel about this issue. So they're now in an area ruled over by Herod Antipas, who just killed John the Baptist and beheaded him for this issue, for him confronting him on this issue. And so now these Pharisees are coming over and say, hey, Jesus, what do you have to say about divorce? So this is the trap. Jesus asked a dangerous question in a dangerous area, and so here's the dilemma. If Jesus says, no, divorce is wrong, that's going to put him at odds with the political powers in the region. If he says, you know, divorce is kind of okay, maybe then Jesus is seen as a compromiser who is going back on some of the things that he shared earlier in the scriptures, right? Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount and in other different places. So that's the trap Jesus is in. And his response is fascinating and something we can learn from. So this is what Jesus responds with saying. Verse 4, haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one separate what God has joined together. You see what Jesus did? His response to this very difficult question, to this challenge and test, is to go back to the scriptures. He doesn't share human opinion. He doesn't talk about tradition. He doesn't tell us about what the laws in our land allow. He doesn't look to his own intuition or offer his own thoughts. He doesn't point to any institution. He simply says, what does God say about this? Because really, God's opinion, God's declaration, God's truth is the only thing that really matters here. And then the religious leaders are like, well, wait, Jesus, we know the scriptures too. It's not like we're naive about what God says. So they, they respond to him, and they say, Matthew verse 19, 7, then why did Moses say in his law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Gosh, they're a lot like we are, right? That you take a clear command, and if it's something you don't like, you find a loophole so that you can get out of it. And that's what a loophole is. That's what a loophole does, right? It's, loopholes are used when you're in a situation that you don't want to be in and you want to find a way out without completely breaking the rules. That's what loopholes are designed to do. And in Jesus' day, this was a big one. Because you see, amongst the Jews, and you have to understand their culture, there is the law, there are the commands, and then there are the interpretations of those commands. And Jewish rabbis and those who are, they debated continuously about how these laws and commands are to be applied in our context. And so there's a number of examples regarding the Sabbath. Well, what does the Sabbath mean? What does it mean that you don't work? Well, it means these things are okay, these things are not, and these were where the great debates were. Well, in that time, one of the great um, religious sages of the day in that time was a rabbi named Hillel. And Hillel was basically, and those who followed him, those who followed his beliefs and the ways that he taught were basically, um, uh, so there, there was a large number of religious leaders who followed this, this rabbi and his thinkings and his writings. And specifically on the topic of divorce, those who were of the school of Hillel believed that a husband could divorce his wife for any reason, for any act that displeased him, including for trivial matters like burning a meal which, you know, we could argue isn't really a trivial matter, but, you know, that's, that's the point that we're trying to make. In fact, 
One of the quotes of the time, I'm going to read this, don't be offended, I didn't say it, I'm just, I'm saying it, but I didn't write it, is uh, a bad wife is like leprosy to her husband. What is the remedy? Let him divorce her and be cured of his leprosy. So that was one of the things that they believed at the time. It was like, you know what? She's like a disease. So yeah, if it turns out that she's not making you happy, just divorce, and it's like cutting out the disease from your body. That's how they viewed divorce. And so with an attitude like that, it's no surprise that divorce was fairly common in Jesus' time as it is today. And so these Pharisees, what they're doing is they're saying this practice, it's going on right now anyway, Jesus, and you're telling us that let no man separate what God has joined together? That doesn't explain the reality of where we're in. And you know what? The scriptures give us an out. So explain how God can be saying both things. And then, so this is Jesus' response, verse 8. Matthew, I'm sorry, Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. There's a couple of things Jesus is saying here I want to unpack and make sure we're all understanding contextually, right? First, divorce was a concession. This is not the way God designed it, but he saw your hard hearts saw that you were going to do, find a way to do this anyway, and God was trying to give a doorway for it to happen as righteously as possible. And so we all understand that, right? If God created marriage to be a sacred union between man and woman as a picture of his relationship with us, then having that relationship broken could never be a part of God's intention. That being said, stuff happens. Men and women sin and even choose at times to defy God. We may not like it. God is certainly not pleased, but it happens, and sometimes divorce is the result. But if divorce is the result, there still must be consequences, and that's what he's saying with the latter section of this, right? So going back to the analogy of the student loan. Suppose you took a student loan, your parents signed on with you, and you decided at some point later on that even though I have this debt, I don't want to pay it anymore. I'm just going to break the contract and walk away from it and say, I don't want to pay back the rest of the money. What happens? Does the bank go, oh, I got it. You don't want to pay it back anymore. That's okay. We got plenty of money anyway. Just go ahead and walk away. No, right? No bank's going to say that. They're like, we have a contract. You're expected to honor it. You can walk away from it if you want, but that doesn't discharge your responsibility. That doesn't mean you're choosing to walk away. All of a sudden means you don't owe any money anymore. That's not what happens. But even worse, if you had a cosigner, that cosigner is now responsible for some of the consequences of your walking away. And that's, in a sense, what is happening with this covenant. God's saying, you can choose to walk away if you want, but that doesn't mean that you don't still owe a debt. And this is what God is saying is, just because you choose to walk away from your marriage promises doesn't mean that I'm still holding you to them. And this is what the idea is. So if you walk away from marriage and you think you can do so without consequences, I'm telling you, you're wrong. And so when you walk away and you choose to be with someone else, that's committing adultery because I am going to be faithful. Your unfaithfulness isn't going to make me unfaithful to do my part. That's what God is saying. And this is why this is such an issue, right? That when you get divorced, are you committing adultery? Are you not? God's saying, well, if I'm God and I'm going to be faithful, even if you are not, yes, that is exactly what that means. There are consequences to divorce, right? 
There are promises that have been broken. There are sometimes kids in the mix. And your unfaithfulness will not dictate God's faithfulness. So, I started this morning by sharing with you that this sermon is going to be composed of two parts. Number one, what does God say about the issue of divorce, which I think we've run through. And then, how we as a church have to care for, need to care for, the people who are wrestling with the damage divorce creates. And I just want to start by saying this. Divorce is devastating, but the world's response to it sucks. What the world will tell you in the midst of divorce is, you know what? You are right to leave. It's okay to leave your marriage if you're not happy. The world will say, you know what? You have to do what is right for you. I'm sure God will understand that. Or, you know what? He or she, they were never the right person for you anyway. God really didn't want you to be married to them. Or, you know what, people fall out of love all the time. You fall in love and people fall out of love. That's just the way things are, so it's okay to leave your spouse. That is the best the world has to offer for those considering divorce. Platitudes, justification, and rationalization. The world's response sucks. But the people of God, what have we done, right? We have to do better than that. We have to do better than condemnation. Divorce is wrong, and you're sinning, and leave it at that. Divorce has to do better than, than to say, you know what? You have to stay in your marriage no matter what. But what about abuse? What about an affair? What about that? Da, 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 da. The reason why divorce is one of the most challenging issues facing the church today is because it can get so complicated when we try to factor in all the individual uh, variables that are involved in your or their particular situation, right? Because a lot of variables come in and they matter. Are you Christian? Are they Christian or are they not? Are they both Christian or is just one of them a Christian? Did one become a Christian after they got married or before they got married? Are they a part of a church? Are they Bible readers? Do they believe in the scriptures and they're willing to submit to the authority of God? All of these questions matter. Are there kids? How many kids? How old are the kids? What if there was abuse? And who was that abuse against? Was it against a spouse or against the kids? Because that makes a difference too. What if there was an affair? And what if there was an affair and that person is still involved or maybe not involved anymore? How far along is the process? Are they still married? Are they already divorced? Are they in the midst of it? Are there lawyers involved already? Are they still living together or are they living apart? Do they want to make things work or they don't want to make things work? Have they already tried counseling? And if they did, do they try counseling together or individually? What is my relationship to the couple? What is my relationship to the family? Because if they don't know me and I'm just an acquaintance, then I probably should just shut up. But if I'm part of the family and they trust me, and what if they come to me? And what if they come to me, what are they asking me for? Are they asking me for advice? Are they asking me for counsel? Am I authoritative in some way in their lives? On and on and on and on. We can run down all of these different options. And so you understand the complexity of each situation. They can be different. And there's, you get the point, right? There's no way we're going to run down all of those potential options this morning. That's not what we're trying to do today. But that being said, as a church, what we still believe is that God has called us to be a blessing to the world, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. As a matter of fact, oftentimes it is in the midst of difficult and trying circumstances that God shines brightest. God has called us to be salt and light. And if we believe this, that God has called us to bring light into dark places, that God has called us to be flavorful to a world that's tasteless, if this is what we really believe, then we have to understand that part of our responsibility is to love 
care for, and minister to the lost, the hurting, and the broken. And if this is really what we believe, that we have a responsibility as Christians to come alongside the people God has put in our lives, to care for them, to love them, then I think by the, then the next step to take is, well, do we know how to do so in a godly way? And that's what we're going to take the time to walk through a bit of this morning. So again, there's a lot of different rabbit trails. There's a lot of different places this could go. So I just kind of wanted to start off by saying, okay, this is not going to be complete this morning, but it's a good starting point. And so I have a handout for you guys that uh, I asked Larry to <laughs> hand out uh, to all of you guys that'll kind of summarize this so you won't be frantically writing notes as we go through this. And so I'm going to share with you just two ideas that I hope you capture that maybe provides a good starting point for those of you who are like, I, I know some people, family, friends, people I'm close to who are in the midst of this, or maybe even I, I've had some thoughts on this for you to be able to walk through. So the first idea I want to go to, the first principle I want to go through is this idea of, number one, be a faithful friend. Be a faithful friend. I shared with you earlier that divorce is personal, and that's why this is such a challenging topic. It's emotional. It can mess with how people see themselves, how they see others. And when someone is in that state, what is oftentimes most needed is to have a faithful friend to know that I've got someone who's willing to come alongside me in this. But part of being a faithful friend means we know how to help handle the emotional mess that's associated with what another person is going through. And so I want to take uh, a, a few moments to walk through some of the most uh, common, most frequent emotions that are associated with divorce. And to give you an idea that when they're going through these, this is how I, as a friend, come alongside them. The first one I want to talk about is intense grief and a sense of loss. So this idea comes from, you know, being a husband, being a wife has always been such a huge part of my identity. And now I've lost my spouse and with that, I've lost a part of my identity. I've lost a part of my family. I've lost maybe my home, some things. My life is never going to be the same again. It's never going to be the same again. And I am devastated, and I don't know what to do in the midst of it. That's intense grief, sense of loss. In Psalm chapter or, uh, 6, God shares a bit of what this looks like when he says, I'm worn out from groaning. This is David's cry. I'm worn out from groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all of you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy, and the Lord accepts my prayer. Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And that's the idea, that's an important aspect, it's an important thing to comprehend, right? That when we are in the midst of loss and great mourning, to understand that God is with us in the midst of that. God isn't going to say, you know what, you're too difficult, I need some space, I can't handle you right now. That is never going to be God's response towards us. He'll always be that God is close to the brokenhearted. He is right there alongside those who are crushed in spirit. He's not trying to give you the right answers and solve all your problems, which is sometimes what we want, but God says, you know what? What you really need right now is to know that I'm with you. I will not leave you. I will not abandon you. I will not forsake you. So our notes, 
If you're in the midst and having someone that you love who is going through intense grief and a sense of loss, sit with them. Be with them. As appropriate, give them a hug, hold their hand, put your arm around their shoulders. Mourn with them without feeling the need to give advice or to provide empty platitudes. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes when we're sitting with someone who is going through intense pain, our natural tendency is to feel like I need to do something to help fix them, to help them feel better. I'm telling you, the best thing you can do is to be with them in the midst of it. The moment you open your mouth and start giving empty platitudes, like everything's going to be okay, gosh, you're going to be so much stronger as a result of this. I mean, they sound, they're more for you than it is for them. If I'm in that boat and I'm crying, I'm in deep grief, and you're telling me someday this is going to get better, watch, God's going to do something with this someday that's for your good. My good is I can slap you across the face right now, and that'll help me feel good, right? That's not what I need to hear in that moment. And so and I encourage, right, when they're, in that, when they're in that state, this is how you are to respond. That is the best way for you to respond. Second, feeling unloved and alone. So intense grief can come in ways, I mean, there are some who can sit in that state for an extended period of time. But typically for most of us, we go through waves of this, where we go through it, and then we come out, and then maybe we dip back in and come back out. But feeling unloved and feeling alone can last. And what does this come from? This comes from the idea that the person I love most, the person I was closest to in all the world has rejected me. And I now feel unlovable. I feel like a failure. Even if I was the one that initiated it, I feel unlovable. I feel like a failure. Others can't understand what I'm feeling and what I'm going through. Even though I know other people have gotten divorced too, but they don't get it. They don't get what I'm dealing with right now. That's the feeling. Isaiah 43 shares a really neat verse. When God says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You know, it's really ironic is that when we're feeling unloved and alone, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy oftentimes that I don't think anyone wants to be around me. I, don't, I push others away, and I end up fulfilling the idea that I feel alone, and I push people away, and I end up being even more alone. That's an interesting dynamic, but it happens all the time. And so when you're uh, sitting down with someone who's going through these feelings of being unloved and alone, depending on your relationship with them, make it a point just to check in regularly to let them know they're not. It doesn't always have to be a visit, a phone call, a text, just something to say, hey, look, I'm thinking about you. I had God put you on my heart today. I've been praying for you. I just want to let you know that if you want me to stop by, if you need me for something, I'll come. Now, set appropriate boundaries in doing that. You're not supposed to be their lifeline. God is their lifeline. But when someone's feeling unloved and alone, one of the most important things we can do is through our presence, remind them that they're not. And understand, most of all, reminding them that God, who, whether through water, through fire, through whatever circumstance you might face, is also not leaving them alone. Angry and betrayed is the third one I want to go through. I won't take too long on this one, but angry and betrayal tends to come across like I'm blaming, right, that it's their fault. If they had just done dot, 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 then this would never have happened. In fact, we just go through and we run scenarios of, and we run through all the negative things that happened over the course and all the things that could have been done differently, and we replay them over and over in our minds. What does that do? That just gets us all the more angry and upset. 
Ephesians chapter 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, God, forgave you. So I want to teach you something about anger that's going to be fascinating. Anger almost never is a first emotion. And there's why that's important to understand. When I say anger is almost never first emotion, it doesn't mean that it means that I typically or we typically don't go to anger first. Some other emotion drives anger, hurt, betrayal, embarrassment. Uh, it can be anything, but anger is typically a second or maybe even third emotion. The reason why that's important for you to understand is when someone is angry, sometimes our tendency is we try to fix the anger. And you can't fix anger because anger is not really the emotion. Something else drives it. And so for us to be able to say when someone else is angry, being able to step back and say, hey, it's not really anger, and they're not really angry, there's something else that drives it. And if I get what that is, I can help them. And so when you're facing someone who's going through anger and betrayal, part of it is realizing, okay, I want to sit back, I want to listen, I want to understand what's driving this anger, and then help them de-escalate. And de-escalate's a fancy term, but basically the idea is don't make things worse. That's what de-escalation is about. And here's how you make things worse when someone's angry. One, you can fuel it. Yeah, you know what? She does suck. Everything she did, you know what? You are totally justified. She was horrible. And you just start escalating and fueling that fire. Don't do that. And the other way that you escalate, strangely enough, you argue with them. No, you know what? She wasn't all that bad. Are you kidding me? Did you not see the, you know, and then on and on and on. So don't argue. Don't fuel the fire. Just help them be in the midst of it, understand where it's coming from, and help them de-escalate. Or don't make it worse. All right, so let's start. There's so much more we could share. That's just a starting point for you guys to have, to understand that these are the emotions that tend to be lurking when we're talking about people who are considering divorce, in the middle of divorce, or in the aftermath of. Learn to be a good friend who is walking through those emotions with them. But after emotions, there's got to be something more, right? So what happens in the aftermath? What does that look like? Because I feel like as a Christian, I have a responsibility to do more than just simply sit with them. And maybe, maybe not. But if you have the opportunity to, there is, right? To redirect. To redirect them. So, which leads me to the next idea. Help them find and make peace. Help them find and make peace. Jesus once shared in the book of Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes where he says that um, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. Another way he says is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are children of God. I think one of the opportunities we have in the midst of carnage as Christians is to be those who promote peace. Being a peacemaker, however, here's where I want to be clear. We don't enter into this step unless we're able to check off these three things, right? Number one, trust. Number two, timing. Number three, skill. If I don't have that person's trust, then shut up and don't do anything, right? Sit with them, mourn with them, but certainly don't try to redirect because we don't have the type of relationship where I can share those things with you safely. So just don't, right? So that's one. But if you do have the trust, I'm a family member, they know me, we've, been, we've known each other for years, then timing is another issue. Are they ready to hear this? Because if they're continuing to mourn and be in grief and they're highly emotional, it is not the time to redirect. Just sit with them. But if they're at a place where, you know what, I am calm, I'm having to put together a plan. I'm thinking through what is next for my life. What needs to happen next? All right, that might be the right timing. If it's not, if you don't have trust, if you don't have the right time, and then don't say anything at all. The last one is skill, right? Well, what if it is the right time, 
that, that I, I do feel like I have trust with them and have this relationship where they've asked me, they've invited me into this. Then the third part is the skill. Well, then what do I say? How do I redirect? What is it that I lead them into? And that's what this is for, right? To help them find and make peace. So I'll share two thoughts on this one. Um, the first one is begin with helping them confess your own sin. You need to confess your own sin. Part of that, what that involves is, you know, we, it can be so easy to stay in this trap of blaming someone else. But at some point, if we want to experience healing and restoration, we have to be able to acknowledge our own sin, that I failed my spouse. I failed to live up to the commitments I made to her and to God, and I will begin by confessing them to the Lord. Now, I'm not entirely to blame for everything, but I will certainly take responsibility for the things I have done wrong. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And 1 Peter, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Here's what I want you to hear from this. Confession and repentance it will always be God's gateway to experiencing healing and restoration. You cannot get to healing and restoration without confession and repentance. That's always going to be the gateway. Healing becomes real when we're able to verbalize the wrongs we have done and then humbly take responsibility for them. So if the goal is that in the midst of this carnage, I want to find healing and be restored, then this has to be the step that is first taken, to acknowledge that your divorce and the sins that led up to that divorce wronged God. Confession is the first step to making that right. Your divorce and the sins that led up to that divorce broke your marriage and broke your family as well. Confession is the first step to making that right. The second is to forgive your spouse. 2 Corinthians 5 shares an interesting passage on what forgiveness is designed to do or forgiving others is designed to do. God says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. What is the story of the gospel? The story of the gospel is that you broke your relationship with God, and God said, rather than leave it there, rather than put it on you to try and fix it, I will do my part. I will show you love, and I will reconcile what has been broken. And that is what Jesus has done. And not only that, when you look in this passage, what Jesus is saying is that not only is that what God has done for us, now that ministry is given to you as well. Part of your responsibility in charge as a, a, an ambassador for Christ is to not only preach this message of reconciliation to the world, but also live it out. Again, when you look at all the complexities of each given situation, there's, there can be a whole bunch of directions and a whole bunch of different ways reconciliation might look. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all definition of what reconciliation looks like in a given situation. For some, it's just going to be reconciliation might be just 
not being unkind, right? Repairing something that's broken. For others, reconciliation might look like a family being restored again after it looked like it couldn't be. Again, context matters, not one size fits all, but the point I want to have us understand is that wholeness and healing cannot be arrived at unless we're willing to go through the process of confession and forgiveness. And so if we're having the opportunity because of trust, we have trust in them because it's the right time, this is what they're ready for, and now to come in and say, okay, if they're asking, where do I go next? This is where we go next. All right, I know there's a lot. And I know I've missed a lot of things that could have been said, maybe even should have been said. What about kids? What about if it was adultery? Is that an out for a divorce? What about the exceptions? What about inviting them to join a support group? What are they, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that we could have gone down. And I know, but we're out of time, and we need to wrap up. So I just want to close by sharing this one thought before you guys walk out of here. This has been a messy sermon. And I say that coming from the prep side for me as well. Um, I, I, uh, I spent a lot of hours on this, a lot of time. And even so, I still feel like, gosh, even just preaching, I just feel like it's messy, right? And the reason for that is, is, I think for that messiness, is inevitably what we're going to do over the course of this morning, what we've tried to do, and what we're probably going to do over the course of this entire series, is walk a tightrope. Managing the tension of what's, what sin is, what sinfulness is, and then what brokenness is. And it's important for you to understand they're not the same thing. There is an aspect of God where God is the righteous judge. And what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what is sin and not sin matters to God. Of course it does. God is a righteous judge. And he declares there are things, there are standards, there are commands that I give you that I expect you to follow and live by. No question, which is why I think absolutely when we go through these topics, we have to be able to hear what God says about them. And we don't have the choice, we don't have the option to bend on God's truth. However, focusing on God as righteous judge does not give us a complete picture of him either, right? When we talk about solely the righteous aspect of God, then there's no question that divorce is wrong and not part of God's plan. But as God's people, we have a responsibility in addition to upholding God's standards, right? In addition to saying that this is what God says, to realize that God is composed of more than simply righteousness, love and healing and compassion play a part as well. These things can't be, these attributes, love, compassion, can't be divorced from righteousness. <laughs> okay, so it's righteousness coming alongside love, compassion, and care. They walk together. And that is how we as Christians need to walk, right? And that's why I wanted to spend time this morning to not only understand the sinfulness issue, but to also talk about the brokenness issue. Because you understand brokenness is sometimes the result of our sin, other times, brokenness is a result of things done to us. And so as Christians, we can't just fixate on righteousness and say, well, this is what God says, and that's it, and leave it at that. No, no. And the other time, we can't just come alongside the brokenness and not be concerned with the sinfulness, too. The two have to be married together. And that is what this series is designed to do, is to be able to say, okay, how do these two ideas come together? Because if we get that, then as a church, we're able to effectively fulfill the ministry God has for us, for the people God puts in our lives. Amen? Amen. Next week, we'll talk about the issue of doubt 
and I'm excited about going through that with you all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time, for this morning, for going through a messy topic in a messy way, and Lord, just pray that your grace and your Holy Spirit would fill us with understanding on how to take the messiness and have it be something coherent and meaningful for us in whatever situation we happen to be in with whoever people we know and love who are wrestling with this. And God, that's just tough. If, if, if it was easy to be like you, God, everyone would do it. It is not. But this is our calling, to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And I pray that the way we get there is to be open and tackling the challenges and the trials and temptations and, and different circumstances and opportunities that you put in our way in a godly fashion. And Lord, we can't do this apart from you. Pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us, that you would lead us, that you give us right words to speak, right thoughts to think, a right heart to love, and show compassion and care in ways that are meaningful, powerful, and reflect what you would do if you were in that situation, God, because you are through us. We love you, thank you, and praise you. You are a good God, a faithful God, a loving God, a righteous God, and we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.